Uh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, again, the lead pastor here. We're continuing this morning our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10. And then boys and girls who are staying with us, there's a children's version for you on page 11. Of course, you're free to turn there in your own Bibles and your smartphones. And on the Pew Bible there in front of you, today's passage is found on page 520. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as, as our gift. We're glad for you to have that. So as I was you know, scheduling this and going through all this, you can take that down. It's going to be a while. Um, yes, yeah, so I was scheduling this and going through the preparation for this, it kind of dawned on me, and I flipped through my files, and I looked, and I was like, oh, yeah, 25 years ago, the very first time I ever preached in a PCA church, I actually preached on this passage. It was Highlands Presbyterian Church in Ridgeland, Mississippi. And I got nostalgic looking back and you know, where I was then and who I am now and what I thought my life would look like. And, and many things have changed, but some things haven't changed that much from what 22-year-old Sean dreamed and what 47-year-old Sean lives. Um, one of those things is the overall frustrations of life under the sun, right? That phrase that Ecclesiastes uses for a messed up world. Man, as a, as a 22-year-old who's been described as a cheap optimist, man, as looking ahead at life, it's going to be great. It's going to be easy. I'm in ministry. The gospel's going to change stuff. It's going to be a cakewalk. What a blessed life. And, you know, and a lot of that's been true. A lot of it hasn't. There's been a lot more pain, there's been a lot more heartache, there's been a lot more frustration than I expected. And I bet if you look back over the last 25 years for you, or longer as well, you could probably feel the exact same way, couldn't you? See, this pastor philosopher of Ecclesiastes, he, he has spent the last four chapters talking about frustrations of life under the sun, living in a world after Eden that just doesn't work where we know the world should be better, and where we kind of hope and expect that we would be better. And so we ask the question, the whole book of Ecclesiastes asks this question, what's the point of all our toil under the sun? That question creates deep frustrations inside of all of us. In the last chapter, we saw how those frustrations force us into this competitive envious mindset where instead of working together in community, we, we push each other away. We saw that all that actually comes from a very envious, insecure heart that leads us to more and more frustration. That's life under the sun. And so far, this, this pastor philosopher, while being an excellent diagnoser of the problem, we're kind of like, thanks, doc. Can you give me a pill? Can you give me a script? I need something here. He's finally going to get to offering some solutions here. After four chapters of not really mentioning God very much, he's going to talk about God seven times in seven verses. So let's jump into this together. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know... That that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, 
for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would do your work on us through your word. That you would help us to see the truth about who we really are, how we really are. And that we would also see the same truth about who you are and how you really are. And that we would see your grace and your kindness towards us when we don't deserve it. We pray, Lord, that you would show us your truth for our growth and for our transformation. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen. So, you know, as you read this text, there's some kind of initial first impressions here. You know, in a culture like ours that calls out for authenticity, that loves to use that word authentic, this is a powerful text, isn't it? I mean, this text right here commends an integrity of doing what you say in worship being a person of your word. It shows us that God is not one who wants to be flattered. And that's encouraging to me. Because biblical Christianity is about authentically coming to God, even in the midst of the frustrations of life. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Don't overpromise and underdeliver with God unless you want to be frustrated. We're going to see that the frustrations of life under the sun are mitigated under God when we come and worship Him with reverence. Let's jump right in. Verses 1 through 3, we see here that everybody talks. Starts right away with saying, hey, guard your steps as you come into the house of the Lord. You know, when we were doing the construction project and the flooring wasn't in, we had a couple carpets here over the threshold right there so you wouldn't trip. That's not what Solomon is saying here. He's not saying, hey, yeah, y'all watch out when you come in, don't trip. It's much more profound than that. Let's look with the boys and girls. Let's look at your version of verse 1. Here's what he's telling us here. It says, be careful when you go to worship God. Be quiet. Pay attention instead of being foolish and evil. See, boys and girls, when the grown-ups ask you to be quiet in church, it's not just because they can't hear and they want silence. It's because God asked the adults to be quiet too. They're just passing it right on down to you. Because the Bible tells us in verses like this, that the worship of our God is serious. And I appreciate how authentic and honest the writer is here. He admits, you know, there's a lot of foolishness when it comes to worship in the temple, in the church. And we need to admit that too. We in the church are not immune to life under the sun, are we? And there are often frustrations in church world that just grate on us. Let's not list them. I don't think that would be helpful, but we got them. I know. And even in that, though, there's grace. Notice what's this place called. It's called the house of God. God has not abandoned his frustrating people. God himself chooses to dwell with his people. As messed up as we are, God wants to be with us. And so he comes into our presence and then graciously invites us to come into his and as those who are here on a Sunday morning who presumably have received that invitation, this text gives us some very practical instructions. It says, listen. That's the primary activity. 
is to hear God's Word, to really listen as God's Word is recited, as God's Word is prayed, as God's Word is sung, as God's Word is preached. In Ecclesiastes' day, the temple sacrifices were offered in silence. Then there'd be a reading from the Law of Moses, those first five books in your Bible, followed by an explanation of the text, kind of like what I'm doing here for the people to understand what they just read. And then the response would be to then, after you've listened, speak back to God through prayers, through songs, and sometimes through personal vows. And in the midst of that worship in verse 2, he tells us, let your words be few. Don't be too quick with your words before God. Why? Because of the great distance between God and us. It's a big theological idea. We call it transcendence. Boys and girls still here, what that big fancy word means, it means scary, different, and more significant, more important. I want to camp out for all of us with that idea of significant. I want you to think about being in the presence of something significant. You can often tell when you are because we have this tendency to talk when we're in the presence of of the significant. Something about being exposed to the significant, the truly significant, opens up our vocal cords. You've seen this. Maybe you missed it. A friend comes down with an extreme illness. Someone close to someone you love has died, and you care for them so much. You know this is something significant has happened in their life, and you feel this internal pressure to say something, don't you? And in those times, you've probably heard well-meaning people say incredibly foolish and insensitive things, haven't you? Because in the presence of the significant, we just feel this pressure to open our mouths and stupid comes out. Verse 2 reminds us that in the presence of the significant, the path of wisdom is to be quiet, listen. We parents, we know this instinctively, don't we? You're in the room over here, minding your own business, house is quiet, your alarm hasn't gone off, it's too quiet. Before it does, all of a sudden, crash, boom, bang. You run into the other room and there's a child there. Something is broken. You look at the child, did you do this? And they start to tell you a story. Right? So you pull out the red card, the parent card, nope. It's a yes or no question. Or in my house, what we do, stop talking and answer with one word. And you can see the struggle, can't you? They want to tell a story. Because we instinctively know as parents, don't we? More words equals less truth. And we forget that when we come to worship God as his children, don't we? We actually think if we say more words, if we make things sound more spiritual, God, God will hear us better. God got to answer quicker. So we have our church voice and vocabulary, and we have our rest of the life voice and vocabulary. And if you don't think you do, ask your kids if you do. Ask your spouse. Solomon here doesn't think too much of that. He says, the foolishness of many words does not recognize the great distance between us and God. No amount of words, no amount of our religious affections, no amount of our ability to sound so spiritual. None of that can bridge the gap between the God who is in heaven and we who are on earth. In fact, the rest of the Bible tells us in a place in the New Testament, the only connection between God and humanity is the man, Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one who bridges that gap, not our words, 
not our works, and it's foolish to think otherwise. See, Ecclesiastes tells us when it comes to worship, you talk too much. Instead, guard your steps. Watch out and be careful to listen. In fact, verses 4 through 6 tells us you say it best when you say nothing at all. Let's look together at verses 4 uh, and 5. It says this. It says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. It kind of almost sounds like, you know, Burr talking to Hamilton, right? Talk less, smile more. (laughs) But here's what's really going on. When people made public vows in the temple, the priests recorded what had been pledged, including a date when the worshiper would fulfill what the vow was. And usually it involved giving something to the temple, giving something to the Lord. And making promises is still part of our worship today. It was worship back then, it's worship today. So what they would do is they would come to worship just like we do. There'd be a time of prayer and a time of response. And part of the response was making a commitment to God. And the text tells us straight up, God takes no delight in you making a false vow. See, vows like these in verses 4 through 6, they were never commanded. They were allowed when the worshiper in the heat of the moment felt led to commit something to God, and so they would do it. And then the emotion would fade. You know what it's like. I mean, I grew up in the church. I grew up in this really big, uh, broadly evangelical church out in the suburbs of Memphis, and this thing was like a Baptist Star Galactica huge church, and had this awesome summer camp that we would go to the beach. You know, you know, how, you know how camp... You know, um, schedules work, right? You get up, you have breakfast, you go to worship, you have a talk, you have a short break, then you do, you do it again, and then you have lunch, and then you have like five hours to just go play on the beach. Then you have dinner, and then you have the nighttime worship, which is really good. And then the last night, oh, that last night, Thursday night of camp, if you've been there, you know where I'm going, right? Man, they pull out all the stops. Man, they, the, the speaker is like selling it hard, trying to get you to come do the thing, man. Come up front, say the magic words, and the music is like pulling at your heartstrings, and the crowd around you is like really getting into it, and like everybody gets saved. The last night of camp, I mean, the chaperones who came with you, they get saved. The bus driver, he gets saved. Right? The pastor, if he's there, he gets saved, and everybody comes forward. You can't help it. It's just like this. Yeah. And then you get home, and then a week later, it's like, I don't think everybody got saved. That's what he's talking about here. We Presbyterians now, we like to do this. We we like to claim the moral high ground over stuff like that, right? I mean, that's all revivalistic emotionalism. We don't do that. But then we do, we're we're even worse because we actually call them vows. We, We make you come up front and take membership vows. We make you promise. And God says, I hear, I remember. Officers, they take even more significant vows. Baptismal vows, when we come and and baptize people up here, we ask you to take a vow of helping them out. We actually make you answer out loud. I hope you continue to mean those vows, because God does. But you know, there's other kinds of vows that we take. Do, Do we think about them as much? Most of us just said out loud, in unison, probably not on key, but we all most of us said anyway, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. You really want God to do that? You just said it. Surely you're not coming to church and just saying something you don't mean. 
How about this one? Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. No hitting the snooze. No dragging out of bed going, oh, I can't believe it's another day. Every day you hit the floor early. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God, you just said it. Ecclesiastes says we better mean it. See, we make vows in worship all the time that we don't consider. We don't guard our steps, and our fool voices come up with many words. And I, I neglected to say this in the first service. Sorry, let them know. You know. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that Mike is so good about getting everything in on time that usually, if everything goes to plan, by Thursday night, the bulletin's on the website. You can download it and start looking at it all day Friday, all day Saturday. You can look at it Sunday. You should never, even if it's a brand new song or a v- brand new creed that we sing, you should never come in and be completely surprised. You have it in front of you to guard your steps should you choose to do it. But even then, I know Mike gets the credit, but also it's, it's kind of is Mike's fault if we get in trouble, right? I mean, he puts it in the bulletin in bold. Someone stands up here and says, recite. And so we're, okay, we'll just say it, right? Am I supposed to actually think about what I'm saying? Yeah, you are. God takes no delight in our false vow, this text tells us. Especially if we make this vow and then after the 65 minutes of worship is over, we forget about it. Here's how we put it for the girls and boys. Let's look at your verse 4 and 5, girls and boys, there on page 11. It says this, When you promise God, do what you promised. Fools don't do what they say and God does not like it. It's better not to promise God anything if you're not going to do it. You see, for all of us, sometimes it's better, more worshipful, more authentic to sit in silence rather than to spout off words you don't mean. No one's going to see you except the person right here, and we won't judge you. See, it's important to recognize these things are serious. The kid gloves come off in verse 6, and he says point blank, lying to God in worship is sin. It makes God angry, even destructively angry. How does that sit with you? I mean, our culture has made identity, self-sovereignty, a faith premise. It is just assumed now, no one has the right to speak into my life, even if it's for my good. Stay in your lane. Mind your oughts. Keep your shoulds to yourself. And so passages like this just grate against us, don't they? Part of our heart wonders, and we don't say it out loud, but I, I know, right? If we had those little thought bubbles like comics have, who does God think he is? To be mad at how I come to worship? I get up early. I get dressed. I'm here. Why? He should be grateful. Which is why this pastor philosopher has already said, God is in heaven and y'all ain't. So watch your words. Let's look at the kids' version of verse 6. Here's how I put it for them. Your mouth can take you into serious sin. Don't let it. When you remember your promise, don't just say, oops, my bad. That makes God angry, and he will make your life harder. See, it translated that way at the end of verse 6 because that phrase in the ESV, God will destroy the work of your hands, is literally God will make frustrating, vain the work of your hands. 
That word Ecclesiastes has been using from the very beginning. All the frustration, all the vanity this pastor philosopher has pointed out and railed against its chapter one. It's not just an out there problem. It's in here, in church world. And it's actually a work of the sovereign Lord who makes frustrating the lives of his worshipers when they don't worship him in truth. Verse 6 tells us he brings frustration to his people when we don't respect his worship. Think about that. Why would God do that to us? Well, we were meant to be in a world that works, and yet we're trapped in this Eden that was. This, this world under the sun. We're supposed to be free to be fulfilled in our Creator, and we lost all of that in our sin and rebellion. So we thirst to have this connection to Him. We hunger to find it somewhere, anywhere, looking for that freedom, and we, we try it under the sun. And so what God does is God keeps bringing frustrations so that this world won't fulfill us. So we will look for something better, and that something better is someone better, even the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the only one who ever kept all of his promises to God, including his own vow to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. See, by the mercy and grace of Jesus, we are forgiven for all the vows and promises we haven't fulfilled before God. The sovereign, powerful God wants us to live with him. And so he tells us one of the keys is to do what we say. Don't let our words carry us away into some fantasy that's never going to be. Or in the words of verse 7, we're not supposed to dream on. Let's look at verse 7 together. It says this. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you're tracking with me, you might be a little miffed at this point, especially if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Our culture says even if there is a God, he, he's kind of like grandpa. He, he's not into all those rules that mom and dad are. He lets you have all the candy you want. He's cool. He just wants you to have fun. And if he ever does get angry, of course, it's only at the bad people, not our kind of people. See, people living under the sun in church and out of it, we, we don't fear God. We don't. See, Ecclesiastes says the real cure to our frustrations is to fear, revere, hold in awe God himself. And in a culture like ours that screams out for authenticity, you can almost hear God himself saying here, amen, don't fake it with me. Don't placate me. Don't say it if you don't mean it. Don't promise if you're not going to do it. Instead, revere, respect me. Tell me the truth. God dislikes hypocrites as much as you do. You know, the last time we were told to fear God in Ecclesiastes was way back in chapter 3, where we saw that we wanted to rule and be in control instead of resting as being God's images. And, and he told us there that frustrations in our life come because we're fighting against our role as image bearers. And the conclusion there was we either live in awe of God or we live in frustration from God. Because God cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. And this is a temptation of religious folk like us. We need to hear this because we do think that through our religious performance, we can manipulate God into blessing us with a better life. 
And so he kind of says the same thing here, same conclusion in verse 4. God wants our, excuse me, in chapter 5, God wants our heart, a real relationship based on truth. If we believe who God says he is, we will fear or respect him. We will hold him in awe. You see, we don't have to try to be impressive before a God like that who's impressive enough without us. When God's that impressive, you respect him. You revere him. Think about how freeing that is. Think about all the relationships in your life you have to perform for. And you know deep down you do. God doesn't call us to perform for him. That's great news. He invites us instead to place our faith and trust in his son Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. In the gospel, we can actually be united to the one who perfectly feared God all his life, even all the way to death. I mean, think about that. Jesus surrendered his life in worshipful fear of his father all the days of his life, even unto his death. And when we confess him as the resurrected Lord, his perfect fear of God is given to us instead of our imperfect faltering fear. See, all these warnings, as we wrap this up, all all these warnings and critiques of our worship, they really should sober us Christians here today. Because we do these things, don't we? We do come to God in foolishness. We do talk too much. We do listen too little. We do make vows we have no intention of fulfilling. And we don't really fear God. I remember at the end of uh, first year in grad school and seminary where they taught us you know, New Testament Greek, before he handed us our final exam, the professor goes, look at me, gentlemen, look at me. You know just enough Greek to be dangerous. So be careful when you go out in the wild this summer. And man, we need to hear that because he's so true. Because you gotta, you know, there's nothing worse than that uh, someone who's just finished their first year in seminary and you put him in a summer Sunday school class. Like, well, actually, the Greek says, yeah, it's terrible. We know just enough Greek to be dangerous. And the reason that we don't fear God in most churches is because we know just enough theology to be dangerous. We read warnings like this and we're like, we don't know exactly why, but we know that's Old Testament. We don't have to worry about that. God's not that strict anymore or or something. I don't know. It's not a big deal anymore. But it was a big deal back in Solomon's day. And it is a big deal in the New Testament. People died for the violation of God's worship back then. And in the New Testament, we have warnings in the book of Corinthians where Paul actually tells Christians in the church in Corinth, many of you are sick and some of you have died because you didn't do communion right. In the Old Testament, there were very strict requirements for purity of life before you could even cross the threshold. And there are accounts of God striking people dead for violating that. He takes this very seriously. People who fulfill, who made promises and didn't fulfill them, God struck down. What do we do with that stuff? Is that just kind of like mythology? It didn't really happen. I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to believe that, but I, I really don't. Right? See, living in the fear of God reminds us that those things are real. The only reason they aren't a big deal to us is because we rest in the fact that Jesus earned our right to go freely into God's presence. We bask in that fruit and we forget how much it costs to get. 
Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this, that since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near. We have confidence in Jesus. We have confidence to enter to God's very presence. What this is telling us is that Jesus was killed for our lack of guarding our steps. Jesus was killed for our foolishness in many words before God. Jesus was killed for the vows we didn't keep. Jesus was killed for our lack of fearing God. He was the perfect worshiper who surrendered completely to God, even surrendering himself unto death on the cross for our sins. And united to him in the gospel, his perfect fear of God is superimposed onto our faltering fear. And God sees us as perfect worshipers. How would it change your life today if you actually believed that? We need to be reverent before God. We don't have to come terrified anymore. Because when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, not in our religious performance, not in our moral performance, but in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when we embrace that reality as our own, his perfect fearing is given to us. And so when God sees us, he sees his son in whom he's well-pleased. When we gather together in Jesus' name, he sees his beautiful, holy, worshiping daughters and sons. He sees his kids because they've been united to the perfection of Jesus and he embraces us. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, man, rejoice in the depths of this gospel, of what Jesus did for you. And let that lead you into a joyful Life of living before an awesome God who embraces you in love. If you don't know Jesus as Savior this morning, he is available for you right now. This fearful, awesome God has made a way through his son Jesus for you to be in his family. You don't have to come with a perfect life, with perfect worship, You don't have to fake it to impress him. You simply have to come with your need and ask him for help. Place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Now, if that resonates with you, do it now. Don't don't delay. Let's pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word today, Lord, we have to admit that many of us fall under deep conviction for how we just waltz in here. But Lord, because of the work of your son Jesus, that's what we get to do. Because in the gospel, we do get to just waltz in confidence into your presence and draw near. And so we're grateful. Father, we ask that those of us who know you, that you would help us to believe this gospel even more robustly. That we would not believe in Jesus plus our performance but instead we would believe in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel and that we would walk in the freedom we have in him. And Lord, we pray that as Jesus Christ has been portrayed as crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would do your promise, Lord, that you would draw all people to him, that even in this moment, Lord, you would build your kingdom and cause people to confess faith in Jesus. 
so that your will would be done here as it is in heaven. We ask you would once again, by your spirit, change us, Lord. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.